0: Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is an Amcrit podcast. Today on the podcast, massive, severe acetaminophen overdose, Tylenol, paracetamol. Uh, This is another one of those life-threatening toxicological ingestions that we should have on the show. We have, I think at this stage, we have calcium channel blocker and beta blocker overdose Um, and then a bunch of general tox stuff, but we haven't gone through a lot of the specific agents. Did we do tricyclics? I'm pretty sure we did tricyclics. Well, now we'll add severe acetaminophen to the mix. And now I rarely will do these tox episodes alone unless it's dealing with the critical care side of things rather than the toxicology side. So I need a toxicologist, and I got a incredible toxicologist, and that toxicologist is Emily Austin. Now, I first heard her many times on the EM Cases show, Anton Hellman's amazing podcast, and he just did a stupendous episode on all things acetaminophen with Emily Austin and one of her colleagues. But I wanted to concentrate specifically on Massive Ingestion, and I could actually send you to Anton's show, I linked it in the show notes, for all things, a review of acetaminophen toxicity in general. So we're just going to deal with Massive today. Emily Austin is amazing. She's at the Ontario Poison Center. She is an emergency physician at St. Mike's with so many of my good buddies in Canada, and she, as you will hear, here shortly is a powerhouse of knowledge on all things toxicology so she is perfect for this episode we're going to jump right in in just a moment a super quick ad for the resus leadership academy which is our um, online fellowship in resuscitation and acute critical care specifically made for emergency medicine uh, hospitalists other folks who are not going to do an icu fellowship and yet want to provide the best critical care to their patients Uh, we have a host of amazing professors and a uh, curriculum of all of the knowledge you would get in a recess fellowship in person with folks like me or some of my brethren at other parts of the country who are doing one-year resuscitation fellowships at a program well this is a virtual one and i don't think you lose all that much you know you'll have to have the pathology at your own shop to try the stuff out but you will be able to learn so much of it through the recess leadership academy and why it's a leadership academy because you will be the leaders in resuscitation at your institution. So if that's something that's interesting to you, if that's something you want to pursue more, just come on over to resusleadershipacademy.com. That's resusleadershipacademy.com. Okay, enough of that. Let's get into the show. But no, of course, we're not getting into the show because for some, like, just not parsable reason, you are listening to the free version of this podcast. And I will tell you, uh, you're going to get the full version of this one. But you shouldn't. You shouldn't because you should be a member of MCRIT. You should be a full member of MCRIT. You should go to MCRIT.org slash join and become a member so that you will get the full version of all of the episodes so that you do not miss out on any of the resuscitative goodness that will allow you to do the best possible acute critical care for your patients. And uh, that just is as easy as going to MCRIT.org slash join. All of a sudden you're getting CME, you're getting tax write-offs, you're putting it on your professional development funds and so you're not really paying a cent. And all of a sudden you're getting the best knowledge of how to take care of critically ill patients. So that's mcrit.org slash join. And now for real, let's get into the show. Who are you and what do you do?
1: My name is Emily Austin, and I'm an emergency physician in Toronto at St. Michael's Hospital. And I also work as a medical toxicologist at the Ontario Poison Center. And I actually did my training in clinical pharmacology and toxicology here at U of T. So it's a bit of a different training program than some of the medical toxicology training programs in the States, but it's great. And we collaborate a lot with people down there and yeah, that's a bit about who I am. It's great to be here.
0: Beautiful. And today we're going to be talking about massive acetaminophen ingestion and we're just going to deal with the critical patient. Now you did an amazing podcast with your partner in crime, another toxicologist on Anton Hellman's emergency medicine cases show. We're going to refer people to that for all of the basics on acetaminophen so that we could just concentrate on the the really sick patient. Does that sound good? Great. All right, perfect. So I guess the first question I'd ask you is, what in your mind denotes a massive ingestion?
1: That's a great question. and I think that really the starting point for all of this, because when you look in the literature for what a massive acetaminophen ingestion is, there's not, or overdose is, there's not one one unanimous or one definition that people really have consensus on. So some people would define that based on the ingested dose, maybe a tablet per kilo or maybe 500 milligrams per kilo. Some people define it as 30 grams in the presence of other co-ingestions. When I think about the patient who is massively acetaminophen poisoned, I assume that there has been a huge amount of acetaminophen Ingested, So I'm going to have a really high serum acetaminophen concentration. But I also think about this other component, which would be evidence of mitochondrial dysfunction or failure that can present as well as part of a slightly different clinical presentation than we see in some of our other or more common acetaminophen ingestions, I think. And that's a little bit different with these patients.
0: Yeah, and we'll put a pin in that because I think that'll come up when we talk about what lab tests to specifically send in these patients that we might not send in a standard acetaminophen overdose.
1: Yeah, and I think that really the take home is that there's no one solid consensus out there for it. We think of it as people often use some of those numbers that I've quoted. People can often say like a serum acetaminophen concentration we use can we use SI units. You know, depending on where you look, it could be like over 250 in your US units are over 500, but that's another way to think of it too.
0: Now, typically when an acetaminophen overdose presents, and they have not been, it's not been a day since they took it, you expect them to have no symptoms whatsoever. They should present with perfectly normal mental status. That might change in a massive overdose. So how do these patients present?
1: Yeah, I- exactly. I think if somebody just takes an overdose of acetaminophen and let's say they come in within 12 hours or 18 hours post-ingestion, we're going to expect them just as you said to have a normal GCS and they might have bit a nausea or something like that, but they'll probably be looking okay. In these massively poisoned patients, they look quite different. Can I give an example that Please. we actually recently had? So we recently had a patient who is about 60, 65 years old. And this patient presented GCS3. So they were, the last time that they were seen was at midnight. And then at 8am, a a family member came to check on them. So about eight hours later, and this patient was GCS3 and was intubated on scene by EMS. Other things that were pertinent about their clinical exam is that they were a little bit hypothermic. The first temperature that was recorded on them was like 32.1 degrees Celsius or something. And, and, they had a bit of hypotension that was that, that corrected quite easily with fluids, but this was this is not what I think of as a typical acetaminophen poison patient. This this is a patient that also received Narcan on scene and naloxone on scene because they're found to be GCS three, and then we uncovered what was going on there in with lab investigations, and indeed it was acetaminophen.
0: Emily, this it's brings up a tangential point, which though I, I want to explore because I think it's relevant. If you found a comatose patient with no history alongside them of ingestion, is there anything that would make you pick up that this is actually an acetaminophen overdose or toxicologic overdose in general? Are you just sending aspirin and Tylenol on all of your comatose patients? What, how do you actually piece that out?
1: I think it's going to be piece. To, I think it's going to be the lab work that will solidify this for us. I think this patient will probably get imaging of their head as well to cover that, because obviously it'll be on the differential diagnosis. But oftentimes, what we'll see is evidence of anion gap metabolic acidosis with an elevated lactate, and the lactate isn't going to be as high as we might see. in now I'm thinking with my sort of toxicologic brain, on, but in a metformin associated lactic acidosis because. Those people, first of all, aren't always GCS3, but can have crazy high lactates. You might see a lactate of like seven or eight, sometimes 10, sometimes less high than that as well. And you have this sort of unexplained metabolic acidosis with this elevated lactate, but the patient isn't profoundly hypotensive. And the other key point about it that is interesting and that can throw people is that when we're thinking about acetaminophen toxicity and acetaminophen poisoning, everybody is and rightly so, we will think about hepatotoxicity and liver toxicity. But in the patient that I'm telling you about are these massively acetaminophen poison patients, their transaminases are solid and are normal. And we have no evidence of hepatic dysfunction here. If you are casting a wide net, it is easy to miss. And certainly when you read about the case reports in the literature, this is something that has been missed all the time, to- not missed, but isn't obvious right away. These are patients who may have a very low bicarb and be given a dose of femepazole because we're concerned about a toxic alcohol. They're patients that that the medical toxicology service is consulted on, say, do you have anything else to offer us? And, and then it, somebody will say, let's we should add acetaminophen to this as well. And then we'll see this crazy high level.
0: Got it. Now if they just ingested and came right in their mental status may be normal. When do you start saying if it's been x number of hours since a massive overdose I'd really expect to see some mental status changes?
1: I this is my opinion, I would say that the earliest you might you might see it is 4 hours. I can't think of a case where I've really seen it earlier than that, oftentimes we're hearing about case, people presenting within eight hours, within 12 hours. And part of that might just be the time that they would be found unconscious or something like that. But the trick with acetaminophen is that often when you, if you've taken a lot of it, often when you're getting beyond that sort of 12-hour mark, 18-hour mark, we're going to start to see evidence of hepatic injury, right? And so with these patients, this I would venture to say a toxidrome of a massive acetaminophen poison, massive acetaminophen poison patient. We're seeing decreased LOC, high or elevated lactate with an anti gap metabolic acidosis, and our transaminases are okay. Yeah.
0: All right. Now, oftentimes, if I have a patient come in, they told me they took a bunch of acetaminophen, and uh, it's been a reasonable amount of time since their ingestion. I'll just wait for the value to come back from the lab. Now, sometimes that could take hours, but I, as long as it's within that eight, I feel very confident they're going to be okay. But in massive Tylenol, I probably want to get the treatment started even before that lab comes back. W- where do you dr- divide the line to, I'm just going to empirically treat based on story even before the lab comes back?
1: I think if you have a patient, and th- this happens actually, that you have history from your pre-hospital providers that there were empty bottles of acetaminophen on scene, so it's you don't have any blood work to substantiate this, but I think it's Fair to give it to start N-acetylcysteine in these patients according to the dose that that you're administering at your hospital. And these would not be patients that we would wait on to get an acetaminophen when we high, have a high enough high enough suspicion. Yeah, I would say we want to kind of get say that we, straight. We
0: had a guy come in, gave you a great story. So you've started IV NAC on the patient. What labs are you going to send specifically in the suspicion of massive that you would not send on a standard acetaminophen overdose?
1: I think, I think that the most useful, the the most useful thing that are going to help you with this is going to be a serum acetaminophen concentration, obviously, but also we're going to need to get a VBG and elevated lactate and then, or the lactate. And then possibly just because of who I am, like I like to make sure that I've covered my obvious etiologies of it and I got metabolic acidosis. So I'd make sure that I have a salicylate level in this very altered patient who we had the other the other day who came in, we wanted a serum iron as well, because we really didn't have a lot of information about them. And she also presented with a bit of hypotension too, and that the, her serum iron concentration was fine. I think our other sort of standard acetaminophen workup is always going to include transaminases and an INR often. Those would create and stuff like that. Yep. Okay. Anyways.
0: So now... You know, we have a standard NAC protocol for our normal patients. Hendrick Singh suggested a radically different nomogram with different lines for massive overdose. Are you subscribing to that? What is your take on how much NAC these patients get? And we will put the proviso out there that you might say, Emily, I'm gonna say this out there, this should all be determined in concert with a toxicology service. You shouldn't be just saying, I'm gonna go up to the 600 line (laughs) on my without, but just so people understand what they might be hearing from their toxicology consultations, could you talk about NAC dosing and massive overdose?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, and I think that you've referenced a great paper that is really helpful and that lays out why we might think about giving more NAC to these patients with acetaminophen. And really, when we're so, in answer to your question, I'm going to be following a protocol that will involve giving a loading dose of NAC. And those are all over the map right now because our understanding of how to treat acetaminophen overdoses is vastly different than it was, I think, several years ago. And so now people giving things like 150 milligrams per kilogram of NAC for maybe one hours a loading dose up front. Some people are giving 60 milligrams per kilogram for four hours. I'm going to give a big loading dose of NAC. And then I'm certainly going to be giving an infusion that will be at least it's going to depend what your local dosing is. This is the trick. But in my case, my local dosing of NAC gives an infusion rate at six milligrams per kilogram per hour after that. And I'm going to be going up to either 12 or 18 milligrams per kilogram after I've given my, local, my loading dose. What? How am I going to make that decision about how high I'm going to go? I want to know what my serum acetaminophen concentration is. That's going to help guide me and an understanding of where I'm interpreting that concentration based on when I think it was ingested. So oftentimes we would think that we could use the nomogram in these cases. The example that I gave where this patient was last seen at midnight and now is found a decreased OC, let's say we have our blood work drawn at 9 a.m. I would use the nine-hour time point for that most conservatively. Um, and so I think that the really the take-home message is that NAC dosing. Is evolving and is complex. And what we know now is that we can and we should be giving more NAC to people who have more acetaminophen circulating. And what the exact dose of that is, is, is is interesting and exciting and in the weeds. But But I think toxicologists at poison centers are probably thinking about this a lot and managing cases and can support people in those decisions. And
0: they should, for sure. Now, the problem with IV NAC is its potential for anaphylactoid reactions. Is that risk going up with these high doses?
1: The adverse events associated with NAC, what we tend to see is that when there is a lower concentration of acetaminophen circulating, there's a higher risk of an anaphylactoid reaction. So in these patients who are presenting with these massive acetaminophen concentrations or massive acetaminophen overdoses, these might be patients who have acetaminophen level of, for example, the one I've told you about her acetaminophen level was 6,400 in millimoles per liter. So in in my units. And so that patient has so much acetaminophen circulating that I'm not really concerned about giving her an an elevated dose of NAC. Now I want to I say that we have had experiences with people having NAC toxicity who have received the loading dose of NAC as a dosing error for way longer than they should. We don't want to get ourselves into a situation where we're doing a dosing error, but we want to carefully and thoughtfully give a higher dose of NAC as our infusion dose than we would have in what I think would be a safe way. And I think it's borne out that we aren't seeing higher rates of anaphylactoid reactions from that
0: in these patients. Is there a role for charcoal? And is there a modification for massive ingestion of acetaminophen?
1: Yeah, I actually I think that there is, and I think that there is some data out there to support that. With anything that we do, it's a sort of a risk-benefit decision. Most of or not most, but some of the patients that I'm describing to you who have evidence of this sort of mitochondrial dysfunction or mitochondrial failure are going to. Be obtunded and are going to require airway management. So hopefully we'll have a protected airway, and that would be a patient that I would go ahead and give a dose of charcoal to, maybe 50 grams of charcoal. And because I don't have evidence to support this that I'm saying, but because we're dealing with such a large amount of acetaminophen, we know that the way or pills in the GI tract, we know that the way that it's going to get absorbed is going to be different. The absorption kinetics are going to be different than it would normally. Not that we're dealing with a bezoar right now. I personally have never heard about a bezoar this big mass of pills but we know that there's going to be so much drug there that it's going to get absorbed a little bit differently maybe perfusion to the gut will be different so maybe there's a role to give charcoal later on too or a second dose of charcoal i would have to think about
0: that there a role for lavage and or whole bowel irrigation
1: if i strongly thought that this was a, a massive acetaminophen i don't think i would lavage that's not sorry i think it So not whole bowel. I don't personally believe there's a role for whole bowel here. And the issue of lavage is always... What do you think the patient took? Do you have a protected airway? Are you familiar with how to do it? What's your risk benefit? And I think that if you think that you have a chance of there being pills in the stomach, as opposed to distal to the pylorus, where they can still go on to get absorbed, but lavage wouldn't reach, then maybe you do. That's a, yeah, a nuanced me, answer. Yeah. Case <laughs> by case, question.
0: depending on time of ingestion and amount yeah. and the presence of an endotracheal tube.
1: We oh. have a great antidote most of the time for these patients. So typically, APAP is the toxin that, that I we don't suggest lavage for, but well, that, yeah.
0: that brings up the question because we know in a standard ingestion, if you get the NAC in on time, you're pretty much done. That's why we don't go to these heroic measures. Is that the same in Massive? Are we guaranteed that if we get enough NAC in, these patients are going to be okay? Or is Massive different on that, that maybe you're still going to have patients go on to severe liver failure, even if you actually are doing the treatment of choice?
1: My take is that if we are a, if this patient presents and we are able to, And there's no evidence of hepatic dysfunction or liver injury on presentation, and we're able to provide good supportive care and a strong antidote and consider some other modalities that we may have access to, although some people don't always consider those. I think that we have a good chance of really this patient doing quite well. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about some of these other ancillary therapies. Now, you mentioned Femepazole for the suspicion of toxic alcohol. You might actually have your diagnosis of massive acetaminophen and still be using this. And that's new to many people. Why don't you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so this this is super cool. And at the same time, we are. We lack evidence that I believe will be forthcoming. And I, if you go on like clintri- trials.gov like there is a clinical trial that will be studying this, which is great. So for a long, t- so we've had this great antidote, NAC, that's been around for a really long time, and what happened is that there was this patient that presented, and the case report is like this awesome title. It includes like a gargantuan overdose or something like that in the title of the case report. And they present this patient who essentially presents with this description of this massive acetaminophen overdose and this severe metabolic acidosis with an elevated lactate. And this patient is administered for up front. It ends up being acetaminophen that people do very well. And then a few years later, some toxicologists write a letter in one of the talks journals and say, well, there's some animal data as well that actually maybe fomepizole will block one of the enzymes that's involved in the metabolism of acetaminophen to the toxic metabolite. So maybe what these guys were doing was actually really helpful. And now there's a bunch of literature, case reports, and some case series, and lots of animal data or a bit of animal data from a few centers that are suggesting that fomepizole can be given in these cases of acetaminophen toxicity to inhibit the metabolism to the toxic metabolite. And then it may also do things downstream where NAC isn't typically acting in terms of the cellular injury that can occur. And so we know that Femepazole is a pretty safe medication. In a case like this of a massive acetaminophen poison patient, we think about giving it because it may further prevent the metabolism to key. Now, I will say, In toxicology, we don't have a lot of randomized trials or strong data to support any of our decisions. And when you are reading about, when you read the literature around giving femepazole for APAP, some people very astutely point out that if there is maybe one thing that toxicologists could study in a randomized trial, because we have... We have a, 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 We can get a serum concentration. We can have a high volume of patients. It's acetaminophen. And probably before we go on recommending giving femepazole, we should um, proceed and get some good data to back up our decisions. And it's quite prudent. And I think that there's some people who are starting to conduct that work too. Okay. So you
0: have a patient with massive ingestion who is not part of a trial and they're calling you. Are you recommending to give it at this point or no?
1: Yeah, we're, I'm giving from Mepazole in these patients, yeah. This patient with this crazy high level that we had last week, she got from Mepazole, yeah.
0: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about HD. Are you using the Xtrip recommendations? And maybe you could talk about your own personal experience and thoughts on this.
1: Yeah, my experience is that I trained in a center where some of the people who are authors on the acetaminophen X-TRIP document trained me. And I I certainly use those as guidelines for understanding what the role of dialysis could be. So X-TRIP, what it's done is it's released a document based on the literature that was out there already about about parameters, about clearance and stuff like this, when you have acetaminophen poison patients and they're getting NAC and which patients might benefit from from dialysis. And it's so funny because when you read their recommendations, they say, if you're not going to give NAC, and I remember the first time I read it, it's like, who's not giving NAC? Of course, we're giving NAC to these people, right? And uh, so the number is lower. But in general, I subscribe to the XTRIP recommendations, but not necessarily the specific serum concentrations. Like The whole idea there with XTRIP is that if you have a massively poisoned patient, you're going to see evidence of mitochondrial failure. And that if we can die. These patients, we may be able to remove a significant amount of the parent compound, the acetaminophen, that's contributing to some of that mitochondrial failure, much more quickly, and the patient may recover more quickly. And there's benefit to that. It's always a trickier situation when you're in a place that you know maybe doesn't have access to dialysis or would need to be transferred for dialysis. We are still recommending transfer in my center, I'll say oftentimes, but I do appreciate that there wouldn't be an argument like just give this patient knack and support them. And that has been done and the patients will often do well. But we tend to recommend dialysis where I'm at.
0: Are there any other therapies we should talk about before we talk a little bit about transfer decisions?
1: I don't I think I think that those are really the big ones that we're thinking about, giving N-acetylcysteine, giving activated charcoal, supporting these people. Yeah. Would be
0: difficult. Now, generally when we have these massive ingestions or any ingestion that's actually been found late enough that there's actually liver toxicity, people's first inclination is I need to get them to a liver transplant center so that they're there. But even when you send them to transplant centers, most of the time they're not even anywhere on the list because this is a situation where we know if we get them through, if we can manage their critical care, most of them are gonna recover Hepatic function, and so they they fall really low down on the transplant list. What is your current take on who needs to be transferred?
1: As you've alluded to, prognosticating this can be tough, right? But I think that the, that what's and we have the modified King's College criteria, which in general I have found helpful to help me identify people who maybe who may benefit from being managed in a in a center where. They could be transplanted, or we're or at least having made contact with the, the transplant team. And I think what the point there is that like it's really the people who have liver failure, right, and who are demonstrating signs of real hepatic failure. So we have elevated INR, their mentation is compromised, and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, and so it's generally we're following King's College criteria. And the important part there is that we've seen patients who have very, very elevated transaminases and don't end up going on to necessarily. Really demonstrate the signs of end organ toxicity or end organ failure, um, but they just have these crazy high transaminases, and those are not the patients that need to be transplanted or that really we're advocating to be in touch with those transplant teams so for. So really, it's more when there's it.
0: multi organ and y- yeah. mitochondrial disaster, not just isolated transaminases.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly, like yeah, exactly like hepatic encephalopathy, or you've got a coagulopathy, we are often acidotic, stuff like that. Yeah
0: now th- this might be out of your area of experience in which case then we will just cut the question we worked a lot with these liver dialysis modalities in critical care and well, i think with variable success i wasn't too impressed with their state of how they were doing five years ago but it would seem like a, a tylenol a massive ingestion of acetaminophen, would be an ideal case for these liver dialysis situations because if you get them through they're going to be Good to. Go- Is there any experience with that in the toxicology world? Has anyone been speaking about these various Mars systems and stuff like that?
1: I don't. I can't answer that. I will say, and this was very interesting to me because I had never encountered a. I had never been involved with a case like this before. That we had a really impactful case, probably about a year ago now, in a young patient who had a unintentional acetaminophen exposure or, or ingestion and ended up with severe liver failure, and they were plexed. And at the time, that was something that was not on my radar as a potential therapy for these patients. And I don't work in the critical care realm, so that may be why. But I I, I looked it up at the time, and I actually found a little bit of, it seemed like there was some data to support potentially flexing these people. And this patient went on to survive. And it's, it's one of those moments when you're at the bedside and I, we did not, I did not think that patient would survive and they did. That's fascinating. Yeah, it was interesting. Is is that
0: something that's on your list of options for massive
1: It is the case. So it is a case that and I actually haven't, we may have one going on right now, but I haven't actually had a patient who is, is, Dying from or in liver, like real liver failure from an acetaminophen poisoning patient since that, I don't think. But it is something that after that case, and we've talked about it around here, I'm going to talk to the team at the bedside managing that patient to see is this something that we should be doing? My understanding is that, admittedly, I looked this up like last year, but I didn't think that there was like super solid data on it. But I think that there's something out there. And so I certainly wondered about it in that patient because what we run into is a situation also where some of these patients, are declined for transplant and oh, this is a limited resource and there's all these other reasons and maybe this would be something that we could do in those patients that's which is kind of cool. interesting
0: I, yeah. I like that a lot we're going to do a whole show on the management of hyperacute liver failure um so folks who are i'll tune in that right now yeah we'll talk <laughs> about that's all that management of critical care but i'm sure there's stuff that due to my own lack of knowledge i don't even know to ask you emily so what are the questions i should be asking you right now that i have not asked you yet
1: I think that the other, I touched on this before, but the important part with these big ingestions is that you can't trust your numbers in the initial. We always say, get a four-hour acetaminophen concentration. So if somebody comes in and says, I took it four hours ago, I'm like, get that. You got to repeat it often. Like you, we often recommend repeating it. I think if somebody took a big enough concentration, I'd expect them to be over the line, but you, we don't clear these patients without often doing subsequent levels, which isn't always typical with acetaminophen. Usually we can say that we would expect it to get absorbed in the first four hours. That's a, another little nuance that we yeah, so do. And I think that would you, uh, I think if NAC is running, we're saying every four hours okay. usually, because it's not really going to, you just want to be, you, you want to make sure that you're not clearing them too early. Most of these patients wouldn't. And I, I think that the other part is that the INR in this massively acet- massive acetaminophen poison patient, that can be elevated as well. And that has nothing to do with hepatic dysfunction and liver failure. It's because of an interaction with key and also NAP with the vitamin Th- K.
0: Let's bring that point out a little more because I think that's really important and we didn't hit on that. So eventually, if they have hepatic failure, their INR is going to get screwed because of their ability to produce. But you're saying mm-hmm. early on, it could be elevated even though they have no coagulopathy simply because of an interaction.
1: Yeah. We see it to one, 1. 1.8 or 1.7. We don't really see it to the INRs of fives or six that you do in that sort of second phase. But certainly we know that there's an interaction of both NAC and key with the decart the sort of activation of those coagulation factors. And so we can see a mild blip in our INR, and that doesn't suggest that we're dealing with liver failure. I'll tell you, I've, and I've touched on this briefly, which is a kind of a different topic, but that issue of NAC or, yeah, NAC toxicity. We, ident- we got a call one time because a patient had gotten, unfortunately, way too much NAC. The loading dose had been continued for 12 hours and they were starting to act a little bit altered. And that was actually because they were developing cerebral edema secondary to their NAC toxicity. But the reason that we got the call is because they were saying like, we're thinking that this patient's developing hepatic failure. The INR is actually going up. And I think the INR is like 1.7 or 1.8, something like that. And then then the error was identified and actually this is much different situation right now yeah
0: anything else we missed emily
1: no i don't think so off the top of my head yeah all right thanks. Well,
0: i can't thank you enough
1: and thanks uh, so much i really appreciate it it's maybe fun if to talk will, about. we'll
0: bring you back for another critical care toxicology topic <laughs> because you're fantastic
1: thanks so much i really appreciate it it's super fun to get the chance to talk about all this
0: so there you go. So good. So good. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, objections, etc., put them in the show notes for this episode at mcrit.org 351. Before I say toodaloo, I always put a pitch here for medicine coaching. That is my physician executive and performance coaching practice. Uh, we've done so much amazing stuff. I like to highlight one particular thing each uh, time on the show and uh, on this one, I'll highlight shift engineering, which is the way of finding all of the stressors, annoyances, things that make you kind of miserable on shift. And then we work through them and actually figure out solutions so that either they don't bother you as so much or they don't exist anymore. We get rid of them entirely. And, you know, we absolutely in very short time can make your shifts infinitely better than they were prior to actually trying to analyze where the problems are and figure out solutions. So if that's interesting to you, Come to mcrit.org slash coaching and you will find more information on how to uh, join me for a free chemistry call and figure out if coaching's the right thing for you. Okay, Scott Weingart for the MCRIT podcast saying bye-bye.